0: Hey, guys, my name is Mason, and this is the Discover Life Beyond Crisis podcast, or you can call it the DLBC podcast for sure. That's what I'll be saying. Now, I want to introduce you a little bit to myself and to my co-host. Now, this podcast was inspired by my book, Discover Life Beyond Crisis, A Guide for Overcomers. And in that book, I go over... How people who are struggling with mental health and overcoming their trauma can acquire and develop practical tools to overcome both of those things. Now, those books, they were inspired by my own crappy upbringing, which sucked most of the time um, and had a magical quality to it on occasion, But overall, it contributed to my issues that were apparent to the people around me, but was a surprise to me when I tried to make my life different from how I grew up. I raised my siblings following my mom's death when I was 20. When they grew up and moved out, I was 26, and all I had left were my own issues. After working through my issues like my depression, my mommy and daddy issues, a stint in therapy, and, and with the help of medication, I recognize that the process of overcoming all that crap is not fun. In fact, it sucked a lot. And the worst part was it felt like I was doing it alone. Now, that's how the idea for the DLBC podcast and book came about. I wanted to build a community. Now, take this how I mean it, a community of defective individuals like myself to walk this journey together. I also wanted to create space that we as a community didn't have to be afraid to fully express how we were feeling, what we were thinking as a result of our mental health or as a result of the trauma that we experience Now, during my journey, I've collected vast amounts of expertise working with people who have experienced trauma and walking their own journeys of overcoming crisis. Another benefit of walking the journey that I have is the people that I've met along the way. Some of those will be guests on this show. And one of those is my co-host, Emily. Neither one of us are therapists. We're not mental health clinicians, but we are life coaches, but and we specialize in helping people overcome trauma and helping individuals develop tools to manage their personal crisis as they navigate their mental health journey. Now from this moment, I'm going to stop talking and give my co-host and really good friend Emily a chance to introduce herself.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Mason. Hey, guys. Uh, like Mason just said, my name is Emily. I am a marketing coordinator for a Sacramento law firm. I was a life coach to youth and young adults for a really long time. I am the youngest of three girls and have always been the smallest, so I've been overcoming trauma for years. I'm super single and in my 30s, so I pour almost all of my love and affection into my dog, Roxy. She's a Yorkie, and she's the best. i believe that i'm best known for self-effacing humor and extreme fomo which might actually be how mason convinced me to be on this podcast but (laughs) here's the thing i'm passionate about people sports politics dogs not only my own and especially overcoming my junk so that i can show others the way through i am somewhere in between an extrovert and an introvert i hate mornings unless i haven't gone to sleep yet and therefore still consider it nighttime so it's okay to still be cheery I'm not an expert on much except what's worked for me and what people, most of them a lot smarter than me, have taught me. So I can't promise that I'll be right all the time, but I will always be honest and I'm really excited to get this going. Yeah, me
0: too. Talking about getting things going, let's move on to our, the next part of our show. Now, this is going to be the part of our show where we talk about some current events. Uh, some things might be about us personally. Some things are things that are going on in the news. And uh, this week, something significant happened. It kind of an end of an era. And it was one of our favorite families to learn about and people that the whole world has been completely enamored with, I would say going back years, as far as I can remember. But the death of Prince Philip, who was the royal consort of the Queen in England.
1: Oh, fancy.
0: Yeah, it's actually sad. He passed away. And most people in his life and probably... Just for the sake of round numbers, if um, if you're somebody that needs like numbers to end at at a zero, I'm sure you were rooting for this also. But many people were hoping that he was going to make it to his 100th birthday, which was only a few weeks away from his death. Now, this man, I didn't know him very well and most did not know him personally, but I think as a result of the crown which is an awesome show on Netflix, if you have not checked it out, has given us a good look into this person that I always saw standing behind the queen growing up, looking in the news and the newspapers. He was married to the queen for over 70 years. Uh, but the royal family's Twitter says um, it's been with deep sorrow that Her Majesty the Queen has announced the death of her beloved husband, His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. His Royal Highness passed away peacefully this morning at Windsor Castle. Emily, do you follow the royal family at at all?
1: Uh, I haven't, you know, kind of on and off. I definitely was into it very much during the Princess Diana years and that whole time, because my mother was uh, really obsessed with that. And, you know, so I kind of fell off of it a little bit, but that was a good moment to kind of give the background of the family and kind of the dynamics of it and everything. And then I jumped back on, of course, most recently prior to this passing of with Philip, I jumped back on because of all of the Meghan Markle and Harry and basically, you know, it was on Oprah, so I watched it. But okay. so there's kind of a large gap except for like the weddings, but I have watched The Crown, which... I recognize that actually the crown, although based on actual events, I'm sure there's some creative liberties in there. But, you know, I've seen it and, you know, I definitely had a feeling in the younger days that I really didn't like Prince Philip.
0: Yeah, Prince Philip. That's
1: straight. Why is he Prince Philip, but she's the queen? I mean, he can't be king.
0: Yeah. I think it was complicated. a, A whole
1: different yeah that's, yeah that's for, but
0: <laughs> when we decide to do a deep dive into royal etiquette and everything that's related yeah, to that. that totally <laughs> we're not gonna do that <laughs>
1: that's not what this is yeah
0: that's not but, what this, that's not yeah i'll have here. a
1: i'll have a spinoff podcast i'm sure <laughs> yeah uh,
0: it's always good Royals. to talk about the,
1: sp- <laughs> it's always going to talk about the spinoff on the first episode <laughs> but, but so we're
0: counting on the success yeah. Of this podcast well, obviously, being... look at it so far. Yeah. I mean,
1: <laughs> come on, but yeah. So in the Crown, right? It showed a lot of Prince Philip's, like you said, the tragedy of his upbringing and the trauma and all of that that he had gone through. But there was so much of that time that I really just did not like him. I didn't like. I was. I didn't like the way that he was with the Queen. I just. So I had these like feelings of like not liking him and thinking that he was ungrateful or you know just kind of judging him as a television viewer and not really connecting it with an actual person right so then seeing this news was kind of a little bit jarring because i had built this emotional response to this character and now it's this real person who's passed away and then to see the responses of his family members And realized that, like, he found, even though there were moments where I think that he needed some significant redemption, it seems like, in the eyes of his family, he found that redemption. Like, the Queen, so this is at a different time in 1997, she was quoted as saying, He has quite simply been my strength and stay all these years. And I and his whole family and this and many other countries owe him a debt greater than he would ever claim or we shall ever know. And it was interesting like I mean I hadn't read or seen any of these things and you actually found that quote and I when I first read it I thought like that is not what I would have expected to be said about the character that I started to know on the crown. So it actually it turns out that it's kind of a uh you know like a story of redemption that at almost 100 years old he was able to- To see where he's landed at the end of his life. I think he's done some great things.
0: Yeah, and definitely he's had a great effect on his family. You know, something that was portrayed in The Crown in the most recent season. And there's been a lot of confirmation when it comes to this part of the storyline. But his special relationship with the people kind of marrying into the family Especially Princess Diana and uh, now uh, Meghan Markle feeling, you know, a particular closeness with him. He kind of brings a level of understanding of being an outsider coming into the establishment that is the royal family. And in the world that entails, everything is so regimented, everything. There is decorum for every occasion, the rules for every situation it can be overwhelming and i know for princess diana this is uh, something that's well known but she felt very isolated and very alone living in the castle you know she was living you know her fairy tale ending marrying the prince but it really wasn't that great and he provided right. some support there and before we move on i just wanted to touch really quick on just a couple of things that his grandsons said about him, uh, Prince William, who may be king one day, depending on how long his dad lives or if his dad decides to abdicate, which is completely possible. It's been talked about in British tabloids. So I don't know how truthful they are, but I don't believe
1: a word they say.
0: They know more about this stuff than I do, I guess. (laughs) But Prince William says, my grandfather's century of life was defined by service to his country and commonwealth, to his wife and queen and to our family. And then Prince Harry, he says, my grandfather was a man of service, honor, and great humor. He was authentically himself with a seriously sharp wit and could hold the attention of any room due to his charm. And also because you never knew what he might say next. And then he finished it off with the Royal Marine slogan, which he held a high position in the Royal Marines, I think for over 60 years, but per mare per terram by sea, by land. And um, that's how uh, Prince Harry finished his statement. And the queen was married to prince philip for 73 years that is a long time and you know our hearts go out to that family and also to the country of the uk united kingdom you know it's the royal family we don't have royals here but for them they are iconic and they are much loved and so you know we're looking forward to good things coming from the royal family and we hope that they're going to be okay but next we want to talk about a messed up family maybe a more messed up family I don't know it depends on how (laughs) you interpret the crown uh, from Netflix but the show Shameless uh, just finished its final season and I'm not very happy I was uh, explaining to I think you and some other people after 11 seasons the Showtime hit Shameless is calling it quits and the ending was not what well, what I expected. You know, it's hard to end things well. Right. Yeah. Uh, when I was writing my book plural, I found it difficult on especially dad in a day how to end it because like my life was continue. you know it's about it's a memoir esque yes, type book
1: yes please tell us about dad in a day yeah it's the a other me- book that you wrote
0: my, the other one that I wrote it's a memoir type book and so the ending I struggled with because I'm still alive so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know there's no like and then he lived happily ever after and died you know 50 years later or whatever and uh I'm assuming I'm going to die at 80.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was like, that's a very specific uh, plan there. Okay, so.
0: (laughs) But it's difficult to end things, and particularly shows ending things well. You know, I wasn't expecting like a great, great ending to the show, but I was expecting for, you know, one of the main characters from the beginning, Fiona. And I forgot the actress's name who plays her, but I was expecting her to come back and she did not.
1: First of all, I'd just like to say, I feel like you gave them Like you were letting them off the hook before you fully expressed uh, your extreme outrage. Yeah. With, um, you know, like you started out with, I understand it's difficult, but (laughs) you know, the right Mm. endings. But that's their job. Yeah, that's literally their their whole job. Right. The show was eleven seasons. It was great if they didn't think that they could round it out at the end and do a great ending they should have ended it like a season ago i'm sure we could have done without like another cliffhanger and another like
0: yeah.
1: i mean you know you can only they can only do so many drugs and rob so many places and do you know whatever all the the all the shameless acts and things
0: uh, i don't know if you saw last <laughs> yeah. season but last season i think it was season 10 or season 9 it was like hunger games but for homeless people and oh, wow this like alcohol company was putting on this contest and it was frank and another character and it was like all like activities that homeless people would do like you and i'm saying this with levity but obviously homelessness is a big problem and i've worked with homeless families and homeless youth, so I don't take it lightly. Also, I myself have been homeless as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult. So I can joke about it. But yeah,
1: that's how that works.
0: That's how that works. Exactly. (laughs) But it was like almost like the hobo Olympics. You know, they were like old school homeless guys. And so they had to create like a little... Just a bunch of stuff. So there was like some creativity that they brought. And I just didn't feel like they brought that same creativity to the end of the show. And there's so many opportunities where they could have brought back Fiona. And um, they didn't. And I don't know whose decision. Go ahead.
1: Right. I was going to ask, do you have any information about like why Fiona, better known as Emmanuel Gray Rosum or Emmy Rosum. I just knew that off the top of my head Roger. why that actress maybe uh, didn't – maybe it was up to her. Maybe they wanted her to come back and she didn't want to. Maybe she was tired of being shameless. Maybe she got some shame.
0: Yeah, maybe. I think I, I – <laughs> You're like, I don't care though. Yeah, I don't care that much. <laughs> I like looked at a bunch of articles and I skimmed through them. There's like nothing super conclusive on – everybody's always tight-lipped with that sort of stuff because they're afraid of being sued but you know like she hasn't done anything since i haven't seen her in any other blockbusters there's nothing coming out on amazon prime uh, like prime video nothing coming out on hulu there's nothing like hbo max all the other streaming services you know it's not like she was doing anything else to not do this show like you know just go for the freaking payday anyways those are just some of yeah. some of my feelings as far as the show. You know, I started, and I think what makes me so mad about it is, you know, the character that Fiona played, who was the kind of like the matriarch of the family, who kept everything together, made sure the bills were paid, made sure the family was together. And I talked about how I raised my siblings and... You know, my mom struggled a lot with her own mental health issues growing up and very much like the family of In Shameless, the Gallaghers, where they, you know, where their mom struggled and and then me having to take on that role of adult, even though I was a child. You know, I kind of, you know, as the person that's in that role in my family, kind of like, I don't think that you would just like peace out like that but that's just my opinion of the show's shameless which doesn't matter anymore because it's over
1: yeah it's kind of like having an opinion about like friends or <laughs> yeah. about you know uh how to get away with murder
0: it's yeah a great show that I do. no longer exists that no longer exists or I lost you yeah even though oh, new- lost I a I, lot of
1: opinions about e- that
0: even now new content is coming out for lost so I feel like we could talk about that one for forever.
1: Okay. On a future episode, we will talk about ending of Game of Thrones because <laughs> none of my friends liked it at all. No. Well, uh, you know what? I'm going to save it. Just there's a whole story about it. I'll tell you later. But yeah. Game of Thrones, it's future It's not podcast. good.
0: Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, the show ended when Jon Snow died.
1: We don't want your Game of Thrones opinion right now.
0: Okay, well, I'm just gonna leave we're it gonna, there.
1: For, <laughs> just You're gonna, just gonna just let it lie.
0: I'm okay. just gonna let it lie. The same way, like they should have did. Snow yeah, exactly. The same way <laughs> that they should have let Jon Snow live out the rest of Absolutely. his non-existence. Okay, well, now uh, you know we're gonna move on to our main discussion, and uh, this last year has been filled with ups and downs. Now, passing one year into a COVID world, and the end, uh, and with the end finally in sight, a defining event for our country comes to the forefront once again when George Floyd died as a result of Derek Chauvin. Chauvin, however, you pronounce his name.
1: Chauvin, uh,
0: Chauvin. Yeah. Sh- yeah. That sounds right to me as a result of officer Derek Chauvin's actions on May 25th, 2020. Now we are just a few weeks shy of one year. Um, We are heading towards uh, the end of the criminal trial and emotions are running high, even more so as Minneapolis prepares for further social unrest due to another act of police brutality. Today we're we are talking specifically not about George Floyd directly, but we're going to be talking about the people who witnessed in person him taking his last breath on the streets of uh, Minneapolis and the guilt that they felt as a result of being a bystander in the sense that they were standing by the event that happened. I want to make sure like, we're not putting blame on them. They feel that blame. They feel that, I don't know, that that regret.
1: Yeah, it, it's actually been interesting, right, listening to the, the testimony of the different people that were there and hearing the depth of their grief and their, uh, like you said, their regret about what happened, about witnessing it, wishing that they had done more or done something different each person had a different angle on it, even super remote angle, right? And view on this, but the people that were there on that day, just hearing them talk about the guilt that they felt, the feeling of, you know, like there was a woman who was a EMT and her feeling like she was basically begging the cops to let her do her job. Let me check his pulse. Let me make sure he's okay. And she talks kind of about like, not being more assertive about what she wanted to do. You know, there's somebody else that tried to instruct them to say like, what you're doing is it's this and it's going to cause these things because he had experience and knowledge that told him that just by looking. But it's impossible to imagine what that feels like to want to step in and want to do something to stop this police officer from doing what they're doing. But then, I mean, how does a, a typical person decide to intervene with a police officer. You don't know what's going to happen, you don't know the consequences of that. And I think from the different testimonies, it seems like these people really felt guilt maybe even with the fact that they chose self-preservation or they they chose to maybe trust that okay, he's going to he's going to lay off or he's going to remove his knee or you know, they let that split second go by where they decided not to act and, you know, that had life or death consequences. Again, like you were saying, not that not that they're to blame or that they actually are the ones that perpetrated this. Yeah.
0: I mean, this but is this is the guilt, emotions you know? that they're feeling right now. They're right. feeling like, you know, a year into it. The cashier who at the time was eighteen, now nineteen, he just recalls feeling like if I had just not you know, an an eighteen year old cashier, you know, I used to work in restaurants and you know, we train people on how to tell if a bill is fake or not. And as you do it for so many years, you can spot a fake pretty easily. But this kid who's 18 years old, you know, he's feeling guilty because he didn't recognize it when the bill was first given to him. And he was just saying, if, if only I had refused it, like only if I didn't take that 20, then we never would have called the police as a result. Of George giving that twenty, now we talk about that and whether or not George Floyd meant to pay with that twenty or if he himself had received it as, as a form of change, we'll never know and and at this point it, it doesn't matter because nobody's life should be taken because you're suspected of one you know one counterfeit bill, like you spend time in jail. For using fake money we have a system and the system is not Kneel on their neck until they can't breathe until they eventually die and This poor kid at the you know, I'm we're in our 30s now so (laughs) when when I look at an 18 year old kid feeling this the weight of responsibility of what happened to me it's very sad that this kid feels like it was his responsibility or that he played a part in this they were operating within the system as it existed to address crime the police stepped over the line and now these people feel this guilt if i had only done such and such if i had only acted instead of instead of just said something what if i had you know i should have been more not aggressive but more i should have been more firm in how i was talking and maybe that would have made a difference you know one of the guys i think that you were uh, that you mentioned he was a i think he was like an mma fighter or he was a professional right. fighter of some sort and very familiar with hurting the human body but in an MMA fight in that environment you are fighting to maim not to kill <laughs> and so <Right. laughs> so you have to know you know when the point to stop is that's part of your profession and as a police officer that is also part of your profession and you know I just don't when we you know hearing the testimony i mean it was it was brutal hearing the testimony of these people and then here you know and i under, like we understand that the defense has their case to make but in the questioning the defense was trying to make it seem to strengthen his case seem like the crowd was becoming unruly and that's why the police Officer acted the way he did. He was acting out of fear and just the manipulation that was trying to, that that attorney was trying to twist, you know, those people's words into, into like, yeah, the, the crowd was getting more violent. No, the, the crowd was becoming more desperate. And I don't know if they used that exact word, but they used words like desperate. Like a des- a feeling of desperation to want to help, you know, in their voice, getting more and more desperate in their pleas to the police to allow him to breathe, to take his his knee off his neck. and And, you know, now we find ourselves in the situation that we're in. But, you know, when we were discussing this episode, we talked about one of the biggest things was how... You know outside of george floyd what are some other instances where maybe some of our listeners some of the people who are working through their trauma they might feel this same guilt and what kind of situations you know might that have been in
1: yeah i mean i think that there are less extreme and maybe not as far as to this but some people have been in situations that are even as extreme as um, what happened with George Floyd but um, I think that the concept of, of bystander guilt, that feeling of what if I had done something or what if I hadn't done this or you know how could I have stopped whatever the tragedy is that happened or the trauma, how could I have stopped that from happening and I have layers of um, guilt about many things um, for <laughs> sure. which, you know, uh, like I said, I've got some stuff that I've worked through and, you know, we're working on all of it. But I'd say one of the experiences that uh, shaped me the most probably pretty early on was I lost my best friend when I was, I think I was 22 and she was 20, something like that. And she was very young to have died. And the situation basically was her and I, we grew up together uh, from like 11 years old or something, you know, early junior high days. and we had always talked about getting a place together. you know it's that whole like when when we grow up we're gonna have our own apartment and all that kind of thing. So because I was a little bit older than her, I was further ahead of her in in school. and so I graduated while she was still um, she was still a senior when you know I graduated right and then the next year I'm out and I'm working and I've got I'm getting an apartment and she's still a senior. Well, I needed somebody to get an apartment with me because I was broke, like most 18, 19 year olds are, right? So I was broke and I needed that help. And so I was talking to her and I I convinced her parents to let her come and rent this apartment with me and move in with me for the last half of her senior year. And I felt really good about it. Um, I thought like, it'll be great. I'll help her stay on track, and we'll have fun, and then once she's finished, we'll, you know, we'll have our dream of being adults and all of that stuff. Well, of course, I was completely wrong. That's not what happened. Uh, we both worked in a restaurant. There was restaurant. Anybody that knows anything about the restaurant scene, there was parties and all these things at the apartment all the time. She didn't end up finishing high school. She um, ended up with a boyfriend who wasn't, uh, I didn't think was good news and, and everything, but basically I started kind of pulling away from her based on the decision she was making with the people that she was starting to get involved with. And she ended up, like I said, dating this guy who turns out he was a drug dealer and had some gang affiliation. And she, about a year after I moved out from living with her, She got killed in a drive-by on that guy's driveway. And, Mm. you know, she wasn't the target, but she's the one that that took the hit and she died. And, you know, it's there's all these nuances and everything to it. But the way that I looked at it for a long time was if I hadn't left, she would have still lived with me. She wouldn't have been there that night. I could have. I should have. What if I, you know, all of those sorts of questions. I thought that she would still be alive today if not for me. And I would track it even all the way back to convincing her mom to let her come and live with me. And the truth is that I nothing that I did caused whoever that person was to pull the trigger and shoot an innocent girl. I had nothing to do with that. But I still carried that that guilt of that feeling of the bystanders like this helplessness of I witnessed it or I experienced it with them. But I I just stood there. I just stood by. I didn't do anything. I saw it coming. And rather than interceding, I, you know, took care of myself and pulled myself out of the situation. And there was a lot of regret and guilt for a long time with that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I, uh, when <laughs> I watch, and probably most of us on here have watched, do watch, continue to watch, rewatch SVU.
1: Oh, yeah. Because
0: Uh um, we're those (laughs) kinds of people. And uh, if ever, you know, I've always been, you know, a little bit of a, you know, fight for the underdog and fight for the abused. And if ever I get tired of doing it because, you know, when you're in it, you do get kind of exhausted from it sometimes. And you just need just a little bit more oomph in your step. Sometimes I'll watch. And by sometimes, I mean, every week I watch SVU. And just recently, they had an episode where it was a two sisters. And now, obviously, this is a made up story, but it's something that that could happen. But the sisters, they both were abducted. One of them was raped by this guy and the other one was not raped, but she witnessed the rape and she was there that and so the sister felt yeah I mean and I've actually met people who have been not in that exact situation but where let's say like an older sibling is being molested and kind of for the sake of the younger sibling not to get molested by a family member it could be you know Anyways, we know the statistics of who those people might be in the house and guilt that those younger siblings feel are the the people who weren't directly assaulted, but were still traumatized by the event. They themselves have this guilt of, you know, I should have did more. I should have told somebody I shouldn't have let it go so far, whatever it is. And that's what these characters were going through. And for the, you know, the sister who was raped, she was like, you weren't raped. And she's like, I wasn't raped physically, but this memory lives in my head every single day. And as much as it hurt and affected you in negative ways, it has hurt and affected me in different ways that aren't physical, but are still very much real and And I know there's people listening where either they know somebody or they are that person where maybe they have that bystander guilt. And there's in those situations, nobody wins. You know, there's not a person that is winning in that moment. Both every side is being hurt. And I know somewhat from personal experience, like I'm the older brother, I'm the oldest of four. And as the oldest boy, you know, the picture that is portrayed is that I'm supposed to be the protector of my younger siblings. And I have one sister. And as boys, we're supposed to protect our sister from harm. And for me, this is one of the things that sometimes I still struggle with. You know, my sister was targeted by my mom's at that time, my mom's boyfriend. And when I found out, you know, my mom was in the hospital and so I had to kind of like take care of things, like kick him out and try to manage the situation as a teenager. I'm like 16 years old trying to manage this event in my family's life. And I thought I was doing the right thing by kicking him out. But there was still that guilt of I should have protected my sister. There was still that guilt of, you know, I should not have like the environment should not have been friendly enough for that man for my sister to be in a situation where she was alone with him where she was vulnerable with him and yet she was and so for a long time i carried that guilt and and it affected my you know identity as a man as a brother as a as somebody in the family you know that's something that it didn't happen to me and I'm not saying that I'm as hurt as a result of what happened. Obviously my sister uh, has suffered the most from that. Um, But there is, you know, a level of of, uh, trauma that comes from being the bystander and that, and I didn't even witness what had happened and that affected my, the way that I thought, the way that I process things and, even my own opinion of myself, which, you know, some people might think my my opinion of myself is really, really high, but we all know. Yeah, it seems
1: like you've recovered.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's still, (laughs) (laughs) as much as I put my best face forward, some of those things still are underneath, you know, the surface. And there are some moments where those things surface more than others. And through the help of Going through therapy and utilizing medication when I need it, and, and, you know, using things like EMDR, those things, there can be progress that happens with those things, but they still affect you. And I think we all know that as far along as we get in the process of overcoming our trauma, overcoming the stuff that's really like bogging us down, there's always going to be that peace that. Is going to be there that can still affect us, you know can stop us in our tracks You know walk you down the street after we get a coffee or for me a tea uh, At Starbucks and you know, you <laughs> just have that random thought of God I failed in that moment. I failed, you know that person I f- didn't live up to you know, even to my own standard of what I believed I stood for
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly am much further along than I was uh, in those initial years post that incident, and you know, post many things that uh, I felt that I've seen happen or experienced and, and felt guilty for. The truth is that we can even feel guilt about things that that we weren't bystanders for that happened directly to us, but still, it's unfounded guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still we didn't do anything in that situation that was to feel guilty for. But yeah, for me, it's been therapy. And it's been for a long time, I had a really hard time telling myself the truth about those circumstances and about my role in it. And so I had really good friends and and community around me and that told me that helped and reminded me that no, that's, I acknowledge that you feel guilty or that you feel remorse for that, you know, acknowledge those feelings, but recognize that it is not actually your fault the truth is Mm -hmm. there's nothing you could have done um and having people that cared enough to speak honestly and directly to me because some people you know you might have friends around you or people around you that will just they don't want to step on your toes so if you're expressing you know something about a Um, an experience they might just listen which yes that's good but you want those people in your life that will not only listen but actually help guide you toward the the healthy way to think about it and like you mentioned emdr and the one of the great things about that tool in therapy is that it helps you reframe your thoughts on that experience Mm. you know what i mean I'm not a scientist, I'm not a psychologist, like I'm not going to try to actually explain how it works. You guys should definitely look it up. It's very cool. But from my personal experience, I know that doing that process helped me to rewire my brain in the way that I thought about those experiences. And so now when I'm walking down the street after getting my Starbucks iced Americano, I because coffee's better than tea when I'm walking down <laughs> the street at that moment and maybe I have something that normally would have triggered me to feel like you know oh God, I really screwed that up or would throw me back into those feelings because I've been able to reframe that and find a different view and perspective of that experience and that's not always it's not perfect but a lot of the times I can do that or at least have that language there yeah so that when that comes up I can remind myself you know it's like. I now have the ability to talk myself out of those feelings versus needing an external person. So yeah, um, yeah.
0: Well, and you know, in our in our work that we've done together in the past, and then you know, the work that I've done with homeless youth and and individuals who are not stably housed. You know, there's been lots of times where where those people they don't have family they don't have people that they're able to express what happened and so when i've had i can't count how many times victims of these violent crimes have disclosed to me and you know learning that process of helping them in those initial moments when they finally get the bravery to say like this is what happened to me or this is what particularly when it comes to Sex crimes, assuring them and helping them understand that it's not their fault, like you had mentioned, and that guilt uh, that not and it's it's not even just guilt. It's just like a I feel like it's deeper than guilt, and it's like guilt plus shame that they right. feel as a result of something that happened to them, as a result of somebody else's choices and how important it is to to help them understand that it's not their fault. And you know, if you're listening today and there's stuff like that you're dealing with and you know this and I understand you know a lot of this podcast is triggering. That's why we put trigger warning at the beginning of our podcast because much of our the subjects that we cover here They're going to hit home. And most important thing, though, is not experiencing this alone. If you are somebody who has not disclosed or you have disclosed and you're working through it or you've worked through it, but you're having flashback moment, you know, make sure that you're not experiencing this time by yourself. One of the key things in overcoming trauma in general is having a supportive community around you. And realizing that you're not alone in this, I think, is key.
1: Yeah, I think that's really good advice and vital to find that community, know that you're not alone, and and talk about it, you know?
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. And the important, and I guess there's many important points, but if you're carrying around an experience like this, only you can determine what you want to do with it. I will say that for me, and I'm sure that Emily would echo this, getting help and telling somebody what happened, not just anyone, but somebody who's in a position to help is vital in overcoming that experience. And um, Yeah,
1: and I would say with that is, if it's an experience that involves someone else who maybe is still in your life, and you have a concern about their privacy or about telling someone else's story, especially, I mean, it, if it's something that's actively happening right now that you've witnessed, I, I encourage you to, to talk to somebody to help stop whatever's happening. But if there's something that's from the past- And by stop,
0: we, um, we mean like telling the authorities, like don't go vigilante. Yes, talk to somebody that like, can handle that. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's not get crazy. Yes, telling the authorities, telling somebody who's a mandated reporter or, you know, depending on the circumstance. But, you know, I know for me there are some things that I've hesitated at different points of talking about because the person or persons that were involved, they're still in my life or we might have common connections. And so I'm like, well, I don't want to tell their story. There's a few ways to handle that. You can tell the story without giving specifics of the other people. Um, You can say I saw a person or, you know, a good friend, or that kind of a thing, or and what I actually like to do is, you can either speak to a professional who they have to uh, maintain the confidence and privacy, or talking to someone who you can be completely transparent with that you trust, but who doesn't have that mutual connection with whoever that that person that you're going to share some information about. So don't let that stop you. Don't say like you know I got like it shouldn't be that you got to take it to the grave or you got to wait until that person's gone or something before you talk about it. I mean, there's so many, that's something I've heard actually a lot is there's so many families that wait um, literally to talk about something until after that, you know, grandfather's passed away or until that person's gone. And it's like, like what a tragedy that is that because you waited, there wasn't time in the actual, like for that person's life, there wasn't time for reconciliation or for, healing or for you know whatever the outcome could have been because you waited so there's actually a lot of good that comes from talking about it but those are some options if you're concerned about Mm -hmm. telling somebody else's story
0: and you know with that i think we'll uh bring this discussion to an end this is in no way the end of these types of conversations this is definitely only the beginning you know this show is put out weekly and we want to invite you to continue coming and talking with us, building this community. That's the desire that I had when I wrote the book, when thinking of the concept of this podcast. So if you'd like to be a part of this community, check out our Facebook, it's facebook.com slash DLBC today. And there you'll be able to, if you uh, like and subscribe to that page, You'll stay caught up on blog posts. You'll stay caught up on our podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening to, whether it is on Apple Podcasts, whether it is through Stitcher, through Spotify. I think there's like, I don't know, like 60 uh, places you can be listening to podcasts. Just like and subscribe us. Give us a good rating. Review us on the platforms that you can. Also, myself and Emily, we are life coaches, and we specialize in helping people overcome their trauma and walking with them as they're on their journey to mental health. And if something like that is interesting to you and you're to the point in your journey where you could use some direction and you could use some outside help, feel free to check out our website, DLBC course.com and there you can sign up for an introductory exploratory life coaching session Um, that's a 30-minute session with either myself or emily and in that conversation we're going to try to help evaluate where you are um, get some possible next steps and one of those steps might be to continue life coaching with us now If you would like to just go right in, we have life coaching packages that you can purchase. We also have a course coming out, and if you would like to purchase that, you can do that. And then there is some bundling that can happen as well, where you combine coaching, the online course, and also part of that online course is you'll be put in with a cohort of other people who are like-minded and creating a safe place us to explore these subjects with people who have experienced them and people who are walking the journey with individuals like myself and Emily who have been walking this journey for a while and know the way. And so we look forward to more exciting episodes of the DLBC podcast. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.